Good morning, saints. No, it's a long weekend and many are away at their cottages. It's also a big storm yesterday. Where were you guys when that wind blew through? I was out on the golf course on the fairway of 15 with my son, and we saw the storm blowing in off Hidden Lake. And I thought to myself, this is one of those moments where it's good to be of average height and to have a six foot three son. <laughs> Lightning always hits the highest object. Well, God's many tender mercies to your pastor. However, we're gathered here, and many are joining us online, some from their cottages, so let's jump into God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll give you a moment to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to look at the entire chapter. Look at verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friends, this is one of those chapters in Scripture that, you know, you can just read it and walk away and mic drop. An eternal weight of glory. By just that phrase and that verse alone invites a different way of us looking at and processing the last two and a half years, doesn't it? Is it possible that the thing that we have lost is a true sense of this, the eternal weight of glory? The last two and a half years we've watched as fear of death has become pervasive. We've watched as the fear of the schemes of men has crept into our hearts and into our lives. We've seen divisions and discord in society, even tearing families apart. And yes, even in some churches. We've watched as Christians have behaved and acted no differently than the world in the face of affliction. Why? Why has this been so? I think it's because some have been distracted by and even fixated on what Paul calls momentary afflictions. When the gospel teaches us that a greater truth awaits all who belong to Jesus Christ. Something that transcends those momentary afflictions. It's not only a truth that awaits us, but it's a truth that is true for Christians even today in this moment. It governs. It guides our lives. It directs us today. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians here, and part of what he's doing is describing the suffering, the hardship, and the affliction that is biblically normal for all Christians. You should expect it. We're going to drill into this verse in a moment, but for now, suffice it to say, this is our key verse for this chapter, verse 17. And friends, as we move through this chapter, it is an invitation for us to reclaim our vision of and passion for eternity. And so we will find peace and hardship. We will gain overriding joy in the face of persecution. 
It's this robust view of the weight of eternal glory that will be anxiety-displacing hope for every Christian man and woman. So this morning, friends, if you are feeling down, if you notice that despair is creeping into your life in different insidious ways, if you feel out, you feel worn out, if you feel weary, then this passage is for you. We're going to move through it in three chunks. I trust by now you have it open in front of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The first chunk is verses 1 to 6. Paul begins this chapter in verse 1 by saying, Therefore we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart. Therefore connects this idea and this truth with what has preceded. Back in chapter 3. Specifically, Paul's saying that the Lord, who is spirit, remember that back in chapter 3, brings freedom from, by removing the veil from our eyes when we turn to Jesus. Verse 1, therefore, we do not lose hope. Paul's saying that that's true for him as an apostle. He doesn't lose hope in his ministry, but it's also true for the Corinthians and for every Christian. In general, we do not lose hope. Verse 1 tells us that this hope that we do not lose is anchored in the very mercy of God. Do you see that in verse 1? Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose hope. And in verse 2, he says that this heart that is not lost is realized and confirmed by our refusal to play fast and loose with the word of God. Verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with the word of God. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Take stock of what Paul's saying here. He appeals to the Corinthians and he says that he has a clear conscience. He has a clear conscience that commends his own conscience to their conscience. (laughs) That's what he's saying. And it's because he's not like so many others. Paul says that you as a Christian man or woman can have confidence in the face of hardship A confidence that will cause you to not lose heart. A confidence that is not found in your own cleverness. That's what Paul's saying. He says, I have a clear conscience that commends myself to your conscience. I have not lost heart. And it's because I simply and consistently remain committed to declaring God's word by open statement. That's the hope. That's the heart. That's the confidence that Paul has. You see, there is nothing that will give you a solid heart when you try to practice cunning or tampering with the word of God. Heart will never be found there. Instead, Paul's saying that heart is actually found in a dogged determination to receive 
the word of God as it is. When you refuse to twist it to accommodate popular or preferred opinions, that's when you're going to find heart and hope. Back in chapter 3, Paul referred to the people who were practicing cleverness and cunning and tampering with the word of God. He referred to them as peddlers. People who took the word of God and tried to make it more appealing to those to whom they were preaching. Try to sell it to them, right? Do their own cleverness. This is a counterintuitive truth that we see throughout the New Testament. We often think that we can make God's word more palatable and more comforting. Right? We, we take God's word and we try to make it more appealing by nerfing the sharp edges. <laughs> we, we, we play fast and loose. We try practicing cunning. We try to peddle it to others and we think that that is what's going to win the day. We try to bring God's word and make it subservient and make it more in line with modern sensibilities. Paul tells the Corinthians that he never did that. And so he kept heart. It's an invitation for us this morning to be really honest with ourselves. Right? Ask yourself the question, where am I tempted to practice cunning or to tamper with the word of God? Can you think of any examples? Things in scripture that maybe you are ashamed of and wish they weren't there and so you play fast and loose and try to change God's word to make it more appealing to others. Well, in verses 3 to 4, Paul warns and says that the stakes of that game are very high. Listen to what he says. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul's warning, and he's saying that this playing fast and loose with the word of God, practicing cunning, tampering with it, peddling it, the stakes are very high. It's no abstract philosophical debate. And Paul knows something that perhaps you have experienced too in your life. That is that a commitment to the word of God will be met with hostility. Have you ever experienced that? I believe it is increasingly so in our day. For the last few centuries, Christians have played a home game. All of the assumptions of ethics and morality, all the assumptions of how life best works have been based on Judeo-Christian principles, but that is being overturned. That's ground that we no longer stand on. So much so that I've become convinced that in Canada we find ourselves in a nation that's living under the wrath of God. I know that that's a shocking and glaring statement, but I believe it's true. Nothing else explains it. Isaiah chapter 5 I believe, describes this moment for us in our society. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, 
who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Every morning when I read my newspaper, I scratch my head and I think, how is it that our society could be doing the exact opposite to everything that is virtuous and good? Well, we return back to Scripture and we see it in plain sight. It is as though collective perversity reaches a tipping point where God simply hands us over to ourselves. The perversity of calling evil good and good evil. It persists to a point where God finally says, all right, enough is enough. That's what you want. Have at it. Let me know how it goes. That's Romans chapter 1. Perversity and sexual perversity in particular in Romans chapter 1, we are told that it very specifically, it's not that sexual perversity and being given over to it brings about the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 1, it says that the evidence that we have been handed over to the wrath of God is the prevalence of sexual perversity. And so you look out at our world today and you see people calling good evil and evil good. And you can, as a Christian Bible-believing person, you can draw no other conclusion but the fact that we are living under the wrath of God. He's handed us over to ourselves. He has withdrawn his divine protection. Perhaps think of this as passive wrath rather than active. It's like a parent who employs natural consequences with their child. If your young child forgets to pack their lunch one day, you come to their rescue and you drive it to their school and you bring it to them. But twice, three times, four times, you reach a point where out of love, not being punitive, you say, no, 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 I'm going to hand you over to the consequences of your actions. You're going to miss a lunch and go hungry. Not because I'm mean, not because I'm punitive, but because I love you and I want you to learn the lesson. I want you to repent. Natural consequences. And so God hands us over to ourselves. Because he loves us. He has withdrawn his restraint of evil so that we will collectively feel the sting of our determined rebellion against him. So that we will repent and return to him. Well, back to our passage. That's the context. That's the milieu in which we as Christians speak the word of God. Not tampered with. Not with cunning. Not trying to peddle it or sell it. But simply by open statement declaring the truth. And when you do that, friends, it's guaranteed that you will be met with hostility. It will put you at enmity with the world around you. Well, we know that that's true experientially, but we also know it's true from God's word because that's what happened to Paul in Corinth. 
If you are a Christian and you refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word in a world where virtue has been flipped upside down and called vice, why the reprobates that surround you will call you every name in the book. And that's because, verses 3 to 4, if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, if as a Christian you refuse cunning, if you refuse to tamper with the word of God, you will be mistreated by the world because their eyes are veiled by Satan. However, if you capitulate, you will lose heart and you will join everyone around you on the slow road to hell. Paul claims that his ministry is marked by this central truth. It's a truth that we have over the few weeks of this series visited already a couple of times. Look at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul says, Jesus Christ is Lord, and because he's Lord, we are serving you. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I just want to drive one point home when it comes to the lordship of Jesus, or the lordship of anyone for that matter. The construct of lordship is comprehensive. It's not selective and compartmentalized. Let let me say that a different way. Jesus Christ is either Lord of everything, or he's Lord of nothing. Now, you may hear that statement this morning and say, well, Artie, that sounds a little bit extreme. But think about it. If Jesus Christ, if you claim to be a Christian and you say Jesus Christ is Lord, but only of the areas where his word aligns with my preferences, if you hold his lordship at arm's length when it comes to prickly issues, then he's not your Lord. You are your Lord. Because you have placed yourself on the throne of your life and you are determining the scope of Jesus' lordship. See how that works? The moment you start compartmentalizing the lordship of Christ and saying, well, he can be the Lord of all these things because I agree with him on those, but these other issues that I wish weren't the case in his word, he doesn't get to tell me what to do on those. I mean, it's, right, top three, money, sex, life issues, typically one of those. He's no longer Lord, but you are, because you've just put him in his place. I don't want to belabor the point, but just to invite you to consider the places where you are given to practicing cunning, tampering, with the word of God, compartmentalizing Jesus and no longer treating him as Lord. Think about those areas. Pray, repent, 
and bow your knee to him. So that, verses 3 and 4, with unveiled eyes, you can take heart because you're not perishing. With an unblinded mind, you can behold the very glory of God. Before we move on to the second chunk, take this away. There is no hope. There is no heart to be found in cleverness, cunning, and tampering with the word of God. Paul says in verse 1, that he does not lose heart. And it's because he proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord. Period. Verses 7 to 15, is our second chunk. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. So Paul's building this argument, and along this same vein... He, in the first place, has said that heart is not found in being clever and cunning, but rather in being committed to God's word. Are you with me so far? And ultimately, he's now saying in this chunk that heart is also not found in personal strength, resilience, or fortitude. That's not ultimately where heart is found. Now, to be sure, those virtues can go a long way, right? There's something to be said for that. In fact, I think in our world today, there's more fortitude, more resilience that's needed. Paul himself demonstrated a great deal of fortitude and resilience throughout his missionary journeys. But he says here, in chapter 4, verses 7 to 15, that ultimately and finally... Heart is not found in personal resilience or strength. No matter how strong or resilient you may be, Paul gives us this picture, this picture of jars of clay. And what he's saying in these verses is that the single most important thing about you is not who you are, but what you hold and contain. That's what he's saying. Jars of clay. Well, the picture here is that of disposable, inexpensive vessels. If you go to archaeological sites or maybe you've gone to museums and you'll see uh, shards of pottery, you know, these things are everywhere. They are disposable, they are inexpensive. And so in verse 7, Paul creates this shocking juxtaposition. It's, it's sort of glossed over in English, but it's there in the original Greek. In verse 7, he simply says in English, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Here, here it is literally in the Greek. In Greek, he says, but we treasure up in the place where precious things are collected and laid up, these things in frail earthen clay, household domestic vessels. See the juxtaposition? We treat these things like they are something of value and treasure, something to be cherished, and yet they are housed in earthen vessels, household wares. What's going on? Perhaps if Paul was writing this 
image today, he would say, you know, friends, we as Christians, we house gold bars and styrofoam cups. That's the picture. When the pressure comes on, when there's persecution all around you from the world, Paul's saying that your heart that you don't lose is found in this truth that you and I are nothing more than common, disposable household vessels. And yet we hold and house the most precious glory of God. Paul's saying that this is not by accident, but by design. Verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is by design, so that the glory goes to God and not to us. Paul's saying, it is God who sustains you, not you yourself. Well, there's something liberating and empowering about that, isn't there? It's emboldening. You and I don't have to be strong enough. God is. And when we are pressed and crushed beyond the point of our own strength, the good news is that it's in those moments that the very glory of God issues forth. We are nothing more than jars of clay. He gets the glory. It's his strength in us. It's not our own. So verses 8 to 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. What a list. Paul says the Christian life can be described in this way, that we are afflicted, not crushed, perplexed, but never to the point of despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Verses 10 to 12, Paul says, it's because your life as a Christian follows the very pattern of your Lord Jesus Christ. And that the point of it all is to show forth the glory of God. Verse 12, to bring life-giving hope to others. We'll conclude with verses 16 to 18, our third chunk. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Did you notice that repeated phrase in verse 16? Paul's using a rhetorical a tool called inclusio, bookends. He starts out in verse 1 with, we do not lose heart. He then concludes that same thought with verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Friends, you see that the entire point of this whole chapter is just this. It's about not losing heart. It's about not losing hope. It's about navigating those dark days in your life. And Paul wants us to know that it's in those very moments that Christian hope 
shows forth. It's in those moments of difficulty and hardship when Christians are noticeably different than the world around them who are experiencing the same thing that the glory of God is showing forth. That people look at you and they say, man, you're going through the same thing as me or perhaps even worse. How is it that you have such heart and such hope? That's the glory of God showing forth in those moments. Verse 16, Paul puts this in the extreme. He talks about that hope in terms of our mortality. You see that? He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You know, it's a a truth that we do everything to try to avoid. We amuse ourselves, we busy ourselves, we lie to ourselves. The fact of the matter is, each and every one of us has within us a countdown timer. And every second that passes, we are getting one step closer to the grave. We don't know how much time is left on that clock. Only the Lord does. And yet, Paul says, in the face of that truth, your hope is found in this. That when that timer runs out, when it has the big final ding, for the Christian man or woman, that's not the end. That's not the beginning of the end. That's the end of the beginning. And so you take heart. Outwardly, you're wasting away, but your inner man is growing and flourishing. Friends, that's heart. Verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Listen, Paul is not dealing cheaply with suffering. He affirms that afflictions and hardships are real. In my daily Bible reading, I've been moving through Acts lately. Have you guys too? And you read so many of the accounts of Paul being shipwrecked and beaten and whipped and stoned and left for dead. Believe me when I tell you, Paul knows that afflictions are real. What about for you? Maybe those hardships and afflictions take the form of bad news that you've just received. Or an unjust boss. Or a difficult family situation that seems insurmountable. Well, Paul wants you to know three things about those afflictions. Verse 17. The first is that those afflictions, no matter how real, no matter how hard, they are in fact light. You see that? They're light. Secondly, they are momentary. And thirdly, they serve a purpose. They have meaning. And surely, sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it? It feels like the hardships that we face are hard as hell. It feels like they are never ending and they just won't relent. It feels like they are seemingly random and just come upon us with no good coming from them. But Paul says, 
They are light, they are momentary, and they prepare you in light of the eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Verse 18. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That eternal weight of glory. For the things that are seen, they're transient. They come and they go. But the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the game changer that Paul's driving toward. He's not minimizing suffering and affliction. He's just saying, So much greater is the weight of eternal glory that these light, momentary hardships pale in comparison. C.S. Lewis wrote a brief essay that was later delivered as a sermon, and it's entitled The Weight of Glory. Have you ever read that? You can borrow it. It's on my bookshelf anytime. I highly recommend it to you. And he made two big points in that. Well, I'll tell you, and then you don't have to read it. The first one that he said is, human beings were created for heaven, for that eternal glory. The evidence is that you have within your heart a longing and a desire for it. C.S. Lewis says that the, the existence of a desire or a longing for something proves the existence of that thing. It doesn't necessarily guarantee that you will get it, But your hunger for food shows that you were designed to eat food. And so your desire for the eternal glory of heaven shows that heaven exists and that you were made for it. The second point that C.S. Lewis says is we, as Christians, sell ourselves short. In the weight of glory, Lewis says, That God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And he's talking about eternal glory, right? And he says, he says, we are far too easily occupied and distracted with food and drink and sex and hobbies when the weight of eternal glory has been offered to us. Our desires are too shallow and weak, not too strong. We're too easily distracted with these temporal things. Lewis gives this image and he says, we're like children playing with mud pies in the street when a vacation at the beach has been offered us. But we are so caught up with mud pies, we don't even know what a vacation at the beach could be like. We need to reclaim That glory, that glory that awaits and makes all of today's afflictions and hardships pale by comparison. We need to reclaim that, that eternal glory, that's weighty glory. I love this image of weighty glory. It's a glory that is like ballast that changes the pitch and the attitude of a ship. Okay, think about it this way. Affliction, hardship, persecution has come upon you and has keeled you over. That weight of that affliction and that hardship is threatening to change your direction and take you off course. 
But the weight of glory that has been prepared for you comes upon you like ballast. You begin looking to unseen things, the eternal things, and that weight of glory is like ballast that levels you off and puts you back on course. I love this image of weight that course corrects. It reminds us of the truth that the Christian life is headed somewhere. Perhaps, friends, we become all too familiar with this truth of eternal glory and heaven. And so we have lost our awe. Right? We talk about it as though it's some kind of comic strip or cartoon cute thing, story for kids, right? To maybe make them feel better about the passing of their dog. Right? They go to heaven. What if we reclaimed the weight of the glory of that truth? And really lived as though it were true. Oh, my daily Bible readings. I was reading 2 Samuel and the account of David. And one of the things that gripped my heart was as David reclaims the Ark of the Covenant and he brings it back to Jerusalem. He overflows with unbridled joy at the manifest presence of God. He can't hold it in. He starts dancing like a fool in his underwear. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. The eternal weight of glory has become so real to him that everything else is just background noise. Oh, if we were to reclaim the eternal weight of glory. That's why Paul says with confidence that even as your outer self is wasting away, as affliction is pressing in on you, he says, do not lose heart. For every time that hardship brings you closer to the point of death, there's glory that awaits. There's a weighty glory, one that you've been made ready for. And in that moment when you breathe your last breath, you'll look back with joy and confidence and say it was worth every moment of that light and fleeting and momentary hardship for the weight of glory. Verse 7, that's the treasure that we hold in jars of clay. That's it. Verse 8, that's why when we are afflicted in every way but not crushed when we're perplexed not driven to despair when we're forsaken when we're persecuted but not forsaken when we're struck down but not destroyed it's because verse 17 this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory something friends that is beyond all comparison and so church remember that and don't lose heart. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we go about our week, that the weight of eternal glory would be so real to us that everything else that is seen and temporal would be recognized as light and fleeting and momentary. 
Pray that moment by moment and day by day we would see fear displaced and anxieties washed away as we put all of our confidence in this eternal glory that we are being prepared for. Father, I pray that that would bring rock-solid hope and confidence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.